Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Production designer Nelson Coates had three movies out this year. He used Southeast Asia for the exotic sets and locations found in Warner Brothers' Crazy Rich Asians. He also designed Focus Features on the Basis of Sex, the biopic about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, shot primarily in Montreal. And he redesigned Christian Grey's apartment in Fifty Shades Freed. When he's not working, Coates is also the president of the Art Directors Guild. I'm Carolyn Jardina, and on this episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen podcast series, I'll be talking with Nelson about his work on his latest films, and he'll also give us an early preview of the 23rd Annual Art Directors Guild Excellence in Production Design Awards, which will be held February 2nd. In addition to Crazy Rich Asians on the Basis of Sex and Fifty Shades Freed, Nelson's credits have included Flight, The Proposal, Antoine Fisher, as well as TV miniseries The Stand, for which he earned an Emmy nomination. Nelson, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Before we talk about your individual films, let's start with a broader question. What is most misunderstood about the role of a production designer? I think probably the most misunderstood aspect of production design is that we just run around and point at some locations and say, hey, let's film here. And then you roll in the cameras and start filming. When really, in reality, you're trying to shape a visual narrative just like a character arc. And you're trying to connect looks and furniture and period and art and architecture in ways that add depth to a story and add a creative element that give a sense of place that make that movie look unique and different than any other product on the market. Well, let's start with Crazy Rich Asians. In this film, Rachel, played by Constance Wu, travels to Singapore to attend the wedding of a friend of her boyfriend, Nick, played by Henry Golding, only to discover that he comes from one of Singapore's wealthiest families. Rach, we've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore, Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, they change the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into first class. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. The production design in this film is almost a character. Oh, we, uh, we really, really wanted to take you on a journey and also create 
not only a, a visual appetite, but just a, an appetite for culture, for art, for furniture, for a very specific region of the world that is not often portrayed in movies at all, not even United States movies, just not in movies at all. And the Peranakan culture of the Singapore Straits, which is the whole peninsula from a bit of Thailand all the way through Malaysia and then down to Singapore, has a very, very unique vibe, unique plants, and definitely like the heaven of food. It is, it's wacky. So we really wanted to be very culturally specific in telling the story that Kevin Kwan so brilliantly wrote in his trilogy of books. And we, in doing the first of those books in Crazy Rich Asians, wanted to set up the generational styles, not only the characters, but how people from different generations live in that culture and the values that they hold and how they deal with their wealth or their lack thereof, because it's very different, the stratas, and also very different in how showy people are and what level they think is gauche or, you know, how there are people even to this day that don't want pictures taken in their house because they are so private that they don't want people to know what's inside their environment. So even scouting this was challenging. But trying to tell a very specific story was the biggest exciting challenge of the movie. The climactic wedding is a key scene. I understand for research you attended more than 35 Chinese and Singaporean weddings. Now, that's a lot of weddings. That's a lot of weddings. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I had read the books, and I was just a super, super fan and had been um, – after my agents to get a meeting for this and was just dying to work on this because one, the books are hilarious and they're just such a wide ranging takedown of and satire of everything that is family and with money, et cetera, and, and also this region. So I really wanted to do a deep dive into the culture and also to work with the incomparable uh, John M. Chu, who just is... So amazing and comes from a family in California that has a restaurant up in the Los Altos Hills, Chef Chews. So family and food and culture was very important to him, having not gone and done a full-on heritage movie for his family and his parents being from mainland China and Taiwan. John's experience of going over is very much like Rachel's going into a new place and in a lot of ways was my experience. How do you see things for the first time? How do you do the clues that will add depth to a story that people may be inured to who live there because they're just so used to seeing the things? But if you're coming in from an outsider and you're going, oh my gosh, this will this will spark the imagination of you know people back you know well, worldwide audiences as well as you know people back in the states and how would you do this and that and so literally just dove into like hitting the night markets, you know taking pictures sometimes surreptitiously of weddings, uh, other times as a, a little kind of honorary guest at the back, seeing the incredible fake cakes that are eight and 10 feet tall that people do for show, but they're competing for the cake designers who are doing these eight to 10 foot tall cakes. And you really can't eat them. They have something else that they serve. Just the level upon level of decor and, and craziness. And so you have to look at that and say, what will tell the story at an even greater level and yet not get preposterous or gauche or tacky? Because we're not making fun of anyone. 
in the movie. We're actually telling our version of real people's experiences, and, and we want you to go on a ride and a journey. So seeing all these different weddings during our scouting process, I mean, in the book, the wedding has Cirque du Soleil performers and, you know, musicians strapped to the ceiling and, and some things that sound great and fun in the book. But if you were to put those in a movie, it, it really would go over the top. So it was like, what could we do that would be wonderful? And as we were scouting, John and I found a hotel outside of Bangkok that had a beautiful, very, very shallow fountain that was almost the entire atrium in these traveler's palms. And he looked at me and said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And I'm going, yeah, I think I am. And it was like, okay, how do we put water in the wedding? And how we've got to get these palms. So we didn't know what the wedding looked like, but we knew it was going to have some sort of water element and wanted to have, you know, a lot of greenery. And when we were scouting in Singapore early on, everywhere the slogan is written on all the construction sites and the, the subways that they're building and things that says, let's make Singapore our garden. It's like, wow, that's a great concept. And they're known for their UNESCO World Heritage Orchid Gardens. And then, of course, Gardens by the Bay and the Singapore Botanical Gardens. And there's also another huge Japanese and Chinese gardens that's full. Yeah, it's way outside of town. And it's crazy. Their highways even have guardrails that are inside clipped boxwood hedges. It is so manicured in certain parts of the country. So we were like, well, if they're that wealthy, they decided to still have a church wedding, but they brought the botanical garden in. So that was kind of the original genesis. And then John said, let's, let's have them sitting maybe on a hill or in a meadow or something. And I was thinking, well, you know, ladies in dresses and you, you, you really do want to have a chair, but if we do some benches without backs so that they could kind of appear floating in some grasses maybe, and so we started developing that idea and created our own velvet benches. So it's kind of non-traditional seating. Then the hunt came for, you know, meter high green grass that would support itself. And that would also be some sort of way, you know, film friendly. And then I pitched the idea of if we're doing such a garden and it's a Chinese garden, there usually should be a focus down front because how many roses can you buy? How many orchids? You know, at some point... It's just like more and more flowers. So you've got to do something a little different. So I said, how about a Chinese moon gate that you'd see in a Chinese garden and we'd build our own moon gate. And then we did a wedding pattern, a traditional wedding pattern on oversized fans that you see behind Kina Granis as she's singing and all this. Then it was how to accomplish all this because we wanted to film in a um, historic church that's in downtown Singapore called Chimes. And it is an event place now. It's an unconsecrated place. And this was a challenge. <laughs> this was a challenge. Basically, we only had two weeks that we we're going to be filming in Singapore at the end of the schedule so that any of our Singapore locations had to be available during that two weeks. And, and it this was a, is a popular location. A very popular location for weddings, et cetera. People book years in advance. Just so happened there was a five-day window or really a four-and-a-half-day window during the two weeks we wanted to film in Singapore. So we grabbed it. And then figured out how we could prefab everything off-site and get it in, literally loading in the wedding in a day and a half. And then rehearsed the second day, shot inside for two and a half days. So basically the last day of filming, we had to get everything out overnight, 
through the front doors, which is the only place that four semis worth of scenery and and plants, et cetera, could fit in order to film the arrival scene before we lost the location to yet a, a Singaporean wedding that was coming in. So we had little challenges like that. And because we loaded in so fast, we had never had opportunity to test the water feature. And the water feature that was kind of born of the idea of the water we'd seen early on, we decided that there should be a water aisle because what bride doesn't walk on water? So we were able to waterproof certain sections of this gold, rose gold mylar and this, all this, but literally we couldn't test it. There was physically not enough time to load everything in. So we held off doing the water portion of the filming until the very last. And when we got to the point where it was like, okay, here, we're going to do the water. I ran over to John and we grabbed hands and our other hands were crossed fingers and we're like, turn on the pumps. And it worked. And we were like, whoosh. <laughs> it was like, great. And then we were able to dry it up and do a second take. And it was, we were very relieved. <laughs> now, another location that proved challenging was the Gardens by the Bay. Oh my goodness. We had no idea in that two week period that we needed to film in Singapore the Gardens by the Bay, where we wanted to do the wedding reception, was celebrating its five-year anniversary with the Prime Minister of Singapore in the very spot that we wanted to build sets. So we had started negotiating and negotiating almost for six months to get to work on the location and be able to film there. They'd never had anyone build sets. You know, they've had a couple of movies that have done a passing through or something, but never, you know, constructing so we had several meetings, got the location to sign off two and a half weeks before we filmed the scene while we were still filming other things. But the caveat was that we had to have sections of the set removable every night when we wrapped so that they could do their anniversary celebration events. And then the set would come back together by 930 at night and we would film overnight and the set would then split apart and they could do their events again the next day. So that had its own special challenge. For that, you use the super tree grove. Right, correct. And we made our own mini super trees that could bring your eye down from the big super trees down to the wedding reception. And so the big set in Gardens by the Bay is the wedding reception scene for 300 people. Very exclusive because any mere mortal can't actually have their wedding reception in Gardens by the Bay or in the super tree grove. Another challenge you faced was rain. Oh, my goodness. This was something that we all kind of hadn't really thought about. But you're filming in the tropics. We filmed the majority of the movie in Kuala Lumpur with a little bit in Penang and the island of Langkawi, which is in upper Malaysia. Malaysia is the third highest lightning strike country in the world. And we were there right in the middle of basically monsoon season. So every day you could just see this impending black cloud just race through. And it was torrential, what we grew up in Tennessee calling a frog strangler, because the rain is so huge and uh, the drops are just enormous. So it rained pretty much two hours a day, five out of every seven days we were prepping and filming. And so that, you know, that means materials have to with withstand the rain. And often you're having to continue on and build the sets right in the middle of the rain. A very different challenge, but with the lightning, such as the big set that we built on a parking lot for the bachelor party. It's all container ship pieces, so it's a lot of metal. So every outdoor set had to be earthed, basically lightning rods everywhere and having monitors and things so that you know we could keep everyone safe. 
Would you tell me about creating the ancestral home of Nick's family? Ah, uh, the young family estate that Kevin Kwan had fabricated from a mix of his family's homes because kind of he grew up in crazy rich Asian families in Singapore, the author of the book, as well as there was a palace that used to be in the jungle in Singapore called the Istana Tarasol which was taken down sometime in the 20s. So there's a few little pictures of that that were inspiration for Kevin's book. And he placed the house in the Tarasol Road area of Singapore. Well, trying to find that house, which is such a pivotal part of the movie, was proving to be a challenge for us. So we realized that we had to combine. So the, the house in the movie is actually components from six different things to actually make you feel like you're on one estate. The exterior of the house, the main exterior, was in a um, jungle area of a botanical garden in Kuala Lumpur, and the interior was another house also on that property. They had been built in the 1880s as the British governor's residences and guest house for the Malaysian region, and then later had been a boutique hotel. And during its life as a boutique hotel, Adele Lim, one of the screenwriters for the uh, Crazy Rich Asians screenplay, actually got married on the grounds of that, which is amazingly ironic. But then over the years, uh, the Malaysian government had, had taken it back and it had just fallen into disrepair while they were trying to figure out what to do with it. So when we saw it, there were rotting eaves, there were collapsed floors, there were literally feral dogs and a bat population living in it, as well as monkey poo, like on everything. It was quite a surprise, but the bones were there for the exterior. So the exterior and the interior being about a couple of football fields away from each other, we created a vestibule so you could go from one to the other added a lot of the Singapore carved and plaster work to the exterior and these beautiful louvers that you see all over Singapore, added those in. Literally, there's big set pieces covering rotting eaves and rotting portions of the house so that it looked nice and amazing and fresh. And then it's entirely re-landscaped and a new terrace and fountains and all that. Then out on the lawn where the Tanwa blooming party is, we built the conservatory out on the lawn in 16 days inside and out in the rain. One of the reasons I had pitched to uh, the director, John Chu, about was that this in a way is like Downton Asians or, or the Chinese Gatsby. And in order to get away from the main house, you needed to have a reason to get back beyond. So if we built the conservatory out on the far end of the lawn, like most estates have some sort of folly or some sort of outbuildings, it would give us an excuse to see everything as the party spills out and moves on and it creates a, a whole different level of opulence. Then, of course, the inside is entirely redone of yet another residence. And the kitchen scene was actually shot weeks before we had finished the exterior of the house. And it was in a um, museum living room space in Kuala Lumpur, a museum of Malaysian architecture. So the Peranakan tile you see on the floor is actually seven layers of stenciling that we created to mimic Peranakan tile, the, the Peranakan cooking bench with the built-in walks, and the then the French La Canoe-type island, you know, is all built from scratch. Everything was brought in as well as an amazing, you know, amazing set decorator, Andy Baseman, my Polita Lim, this food stylist, not to be believed, and Justine Dunn, my prop master, 
all we worked on every dish, auditioned every food item so that we knew exactly what was happening with each. Then the gates to Terrasol Park were actually on a golf course road in Singapore because we couldn't find anything that didn't have guardrails that had enough lush vegetation on either side in Kuala Lumpur. So those were built there. And the monkeys kept stealing our tools. Every time we would set a tool down, it would be gone. And we we're like, oh, no, this is crazy. <laughs> and then finally, in the movie, you see this beautiful flyover shot of the whole Terrasol Park estate. And it's not real at all. In fact, we actually did that VFX shot after the movie was in post back here in Los Angeles, creating the lake and the fountains and the walkways and bridges and everything you see, that entire shot is a manufactured shot back here in Los Angeles. So a lot of things came together, including a tiger that we had to create from scratch. All of that is hopefully coming together in a way that sells the amazing old world ancestral home of the Youngs and the Peranakan style, which this is basically the first Hollywood movie ever to have Peranakan style in it. Another location that I recognized was the Infinity Pool at the Marina Bay Sands. That's always a crowded location. Oh my goodness. The, uh, what was involved? Uh, it, it took six months also of negotiating with uh, Marina Bay Sands to allow filming up on top of the uh, towers. And the pool is open until... 10 o'clock at night, and there was absolutely no movement on that. It had to stay open to the public uh, or to the rented guests until then. And then there are restaurants up on top that are outside vendors. So we had to work with each of them to convince them that we needed to control lighting or clean out the set dressing and uh, make everything happen. And we worked with the hotel to get the pool area cleaned in like 30 minutes. They had just an army out there cleaning all the towels and the things and the detrist so that it could be, you know, great and clean and getting equipment up where it could store because there's limited space on top. You'll see some elements up on top during the texting sequence early on in the movie where we were using parts while it was still open to the public. And then, of course, we uh, were very blessed that the Singapore gold medalist Olympic synchronized swimming team agreed to be in the movie. So they're in the pool when we have that going on. So there's a lot of coordination just in that one little scene, as well as drones become an issue with the Singaporean government and the military, and they want to see exactly what you're filming. And you have someone with the military there with you when you're using drones. And so, you know, just part of the shot pulling away is a drone, and then, it, you know, you have to create it in, in the computer. We should also mention your crew. You had a very diverse crew. Yeah. One of the, the most exciting aspects of doing Crazy Rich Asians was the fact that I had crew members from 12 different countries on the design team and 28 different countries represented on the, the film, the entire crew. And having all of those voices, having all the different faces, all the different inputs and ex life experiences just added a richness to the movie and kind of a joy every day. When Kevin Kwan was writing the book, he had a post-it on his computer with the word joy on it. And so we put that in the movie as little Easter eggs in places. You'll see the word joy hidden, hidden in there. And we listened to some of the music every day as we were working. We had post-its all over the office with the word joy. It was like, we have to see this and we have to get this camaraderie and this amazing joy that we feel every day at work, even though it was incredibly hard and incredibly fast. There was just such a lifetime of friendship that is almost unlike anything I've ever experienced on a movie before. 
And, you know, that all starts at the top. You know, John Chu just set up a really, really high bar and everyone just knocked it out of the park. Let's move on to On the Basis of Sex. Now, this film was shot primarily in Montreal, and that was used for New York, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and other locations. Yes, I've, I've been a friend of Mimi Leaders for about 16 years. We've had the great fortune, or I've, I should say, I've had the great fortune of getting to work with her many times over the years. And she had this project that we thought was going sooner, and I thought I was going to miss it because I was still in Malaysia on Crazy Rich Asians, and it pushed a bit, and the timing worked out great. I had like a week off between projects, and the first intent was that it was going to film in Toronto, and I filmed in Toronto many times and presented to them the fact that there was not enough historic buildings still in place to do the 50s and the 70s, New York and Boston well there. So they asked where they suggested, and I said, well, can we look at Montreal? So I was on a plane two days later to Montreal scouting, brought them there, and they went, oh, yeah, we can see how this could work. You know, how can we do the Upper East Side? How can we do Lexington Avenue? How can we do Soho? Uh, A lot of things that are needed for the movie. And because everyone's in the business of doing their own stores and and schools, et cetera. We needed access to places like McGill University and the old port where there are a lot of tourist shops and things. So we had to shoot our schedule on a Saturday through Wednesday filming schedule so we could take advantage of lots of locations that otherwise we would not have had access to. Now you used McGill for Harvard. Yeah, we used some of McGill for Harvard and yet built elements and introduced them because, you know, everyone has the white marker boards or technology boards instead of blackboards and, you know, new lighting or uh, security cameras or or even the vinyl on seats. So we were slip covering things. We were bringing in the opening convocation scene is a lot of built pieces in order to make it look like the moot court that Harvard has in Adams Hall so that it would feel very much like it did back in the day for Justice Ginsburg. And I got to meet her in her house, which was very exciting. You know, you really want to try to get into the head of characters, and very rarely do you have the opportunity to design something with a historical figure who's actually still alive. So I requested of her staff the ability to meet her on one of our scout trips to Washington, D.C., and they said, well, she would most welcome you at her house at Watergate where she's lived the entire time that she and her husband have lived in D.C. And it was just the two of us walking through her house. She said, I, you know, I don't really understand why you want to see things because I don't really have anything from our time in New York 25 years prior. And yet, as I was walking around, there's a piano. And I said, who plays? She goes, well, the kids played and I played a little bit. And it was like, well, that's not in anything I've read about her. So I said, did you have a piano back in New York in the day? And she goes, yes, one of those that sat against the wall. I said, like a spinet. She goes, yes, I did. So in her apartment, we have the spinet. We saw the Avedon pictures of her and her daughter on the bookshelf. And so we recreated those with our characters. And her time in Scandinavia in the 60s, she developed a love for mid-century modern furniture. And so I noticed several pieces around her bedroom and different parts of the house that were mid-century and said, did you have these in, in New York? And she says, well, well, yes, I did. And I had you know this piece of art and, here's, and she's so smart, she can tell you where she purchased it even now. And it was just an amazing experience to see her recollect 
images and things in photographs and tell you not only who they were when the picture was taken, but what has happened subsequently to all these people everywhere in her photos throughout the whole house. She was so inspiring. And even today, her work desk is right by her bed. So if she wakes up in the middle of the night, she can get up and go right to work. Just an incredible woman. So basically, I wanted to do justice to Ruth Ginsburg. Let's talk a little bit about some of the sets and locations. Soho. Okay. Soho was in the old port part of uh, Montreal. And the challenge there is it's filled with tourist shops and restaurants and a, a very vibrant part of Montreal. And if you're trying to make it look like the 70s, Soho wasn't even really developed at all that much in the 70s and was fairly derelict. And artists had taken over all the the uh, lofts and things before the Stella McCartney's and the, everyone had moved in with their shops. So we had to dress literally overnight and plan what windows we were covering, how to make it look like roll-down metal grating. We were shrink-wrapping the brick with plastic so we could graffiti the brick and then clean it off immediately, literally dressing everything in in a full overnight dress to film the next day, and then it had to be gone so that the shops could you know open back up. It was Really crazy, almost like planning, you know, an army occupation. You know, it's we're going to take over this. It's got to get in. It's got to get immediately out. We had 86 sets and locations in that show, which is really a lot, especially when they're all period, 1956, 1959, 1970, 71. And you're representing three different cities. So it was for a small movie with just like 33 days of filming. It was incredible, incredibly aggressive. And yet it seems so excitingly authentic when you watch the movie. You'll see New York streets that it just kind of is befuddling now when you see it all together because there's so many cars and things. It, it doesn't feel vacant. It, it feels like an active New York that you've stepped back in time. And tell us about the courtroom. Well, the denouement or the, the big end of the movie for On the Basis of Sex is about this basic gender discrimination case. And so the pivotal moments take place in a courtroom. And there are not many courtrooms at all that you can get into pretty much in any city. That's always a challenge because the dockets are so full with real cases, they don't want to let you in. And usually you need more than a day or two of filming to do effective scenes. We kept looking and kept looking and could not find a courtroom and finally found an old convent that was near the University of Montreal that had never had any filming. It was not a convent anymore and was being developed into condominiums. And there was a large chapel area that had some columns in it. And with the columns and the floor of that, I knew I could create the rest of the courtroom. So we prefabbed everything else, basically both ends and elements of the windows and all the benches and things, prefabbed them off-site and actually loaded them in on a Wednesday. And by Saturday morning, we were filming that scene. So it was wacky, wacky aggressive. And I, I really wanted to have some sort of image of the struggle for gender equality. And so there's a painting from the Smithsonian Museum of American Art Thomas Hart Benton painting where you see this guy fighting with a bull and all the women are are kind of helplessly kind of waving their little kerchiefs and things off the distance. And, and it, you feel the struggle, which it, it, the painting is really about man's taming the land, but it feels like you're taming what has happened 
up to that point in the law. And so I got permission to reproduce that painting, and it becomes a beautiful focal piece behind Justice Ginsburg's final address. That was a fantastic scene. Thank you. And then let's also talk about the New York apartment where she lived with her husband, Marty. When the Ginsburgs lived on the Upper East Side in New York in the 70s, they lived in a building that had just opened, which was supposedly a marvel of modern architecture. And with her newfound love for mid-century modernism, there was an aspect of, of course, they would be drawn to this building that was so clean and streamlined for the day. So we knew she lived in the Imperial House, which ironically, at the same time they lived in that building, that was the final home for Joan Crawford. And Liza Minnelli also lived in this building at the same time. A little fun trivia. Oh, interesting. But it was an entire city block, and it's still there to this day. So we couldn't get the exact floor print of their apartment because it had been modified over time. So we uh, got all the major footprints of the number of bedrooms that are in that building that corresponded to the number of bedrooms they had in their apartment and then made modifications to make it work for the movie so that the moot court would work with a sunken living room. The Ginsburg didn't have the second living room, but there are sunken living rooms in that building. So it helped us put head heights together when she's doing the moot court and everyone's sitting at the dining table quizzing her. And so we just created a warm, very interesting space that was based on her taste and also what actually existed at the time. So even out the windows, the backdrop that we have is literally of the Upper East Side from the period. So every element that you look at, she says it's spot on. So that's that's who there I need to impress. <laughs> so if I could ask you to put on your Art Directors Guild president hat for the moment, the Guild has been involved in some diversity and inclusion initiatives. Would you give us an update? You bet. One of the things when I took on the role of president of the Guild that I really felt important was to start working on career pathways for underserved constituencies that haven't had access to the way in to behind the scenes crew positions and really wanted to not only be diverse, but also representational and get a wide representation of folks starting to look at this as an, a viable career. People see directors, producers, writers. Not often do they think about, oh, you know what? I, I actually want to design. And it's such an exciting storytelling element, as well as just a great career, that I wanted to make sure that we had a way to reach out. It's a longer path than some aspects of the business because you actually do have to have the skills of set design and architecture and art and history and you're you're basically a cultural anthropologist so you have to learn a lot of those skills along the way so we're working on educational programs now for the high schools and colleges so that you know about the jobs way before you need to be trained for the jobs so it creates an excitement as well as then starting to do internships and apprentices, uh, mentoring things. So we have several things getting ready to come online that I think hopefully will really educate and encourage people to see that these are directions that they can go with their life and be very fulfilled as they're telling stories from where they're from. Great. And then you also have the Art Directors Guild Awards, which will be held February 2nd. And this year's theme is Production Design Landscape of the Imagination. Why was that selected? 
I think one of the reasons we went with Landscape of the Imagination is that as the design team for movies, we're creating not only small details, but broad stroke uh, visions of worlds. Uh, we're all in the business of world building, whether it is an inner city LA story or the most futuristic battleship. Any of those things need really careful consideration and they need strong imaginations. And so this year, we're trying to put a spotlight on the role of a production designer's imagination in creating those worlds. And I love every opportunity I have to flag wave for all the members of the guild that work so incredibly hard to make those details. Uh, you know, if, it, if someone doesn't say it, or if you don't see it, it's not in the movie. It doesn't matter what's in the script. If someone doesn't say it, or if you don't see it, it's not there. So we, we're the team that takes those ideas that a writer has created and crafted and the director is presenting, but then we find ways to flesh it out and make it exciting and, and take you on a journey that you've never been on before. I'm guessing you have some surprises in store for the production design of the ballroom. Oh, yes. In fact, we're, I think, one of the first to be in uh, the new Intercontinental Hotel downtown Los Angeles. So we're very excited about moving into that space and showcasing the work of our incredible members. And you also have four Lifetime Achievement Award honorees. Yes, our, our guild is actually comprised of four different distinct groups. Uh, there's the Art Directors Branch, which is production designers, art directors, and assistant art directors. Then there's the illustrators and mad artists who are creating like illustrations that help sell the ideas for a movie or matte paintings that happen behind, whether that's physical or digital. There's the Scenic Title and Graphic Designers Branch. And then the final branch is the set designers and model makers branch. All of these are vastly important interlocking groups that create the Art Directors Guild. And each of those individual guilds then select someone for a Life Achievement Award. Then we get to honor that person during the uh, awards. So we have four exciting individuals this year. We have a senior illustrator and production designer, Ed Vero. We have scenic artist Jim Friorio and set designer and art director William F. Matthews. And they're joining Oscar-nominated production designer Janine Oppenwald in receiving the Lifetime Achievement Awards for uh, the Art Directors Guild for each of the crafts. And I can't wait to celebrate with them their lifetime of amazing work, as well as all the new honorees that will be as a result of this year's crop of movies and television, commercials, and short-form internet, you name it. We have an award celebrating the design achievements. Well, Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. So much fun being with you today. Thanks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.